Hey guys, and welcome to Personality Bingo with me, your host, Tom Moran. So this week on the podcast, we have the wonderful Dave Horan. Dave is a writer, he's a director, uh, he runs the uh, Bewley's Cafe Theatre as well as being an acting teacher at the Lear Academy. You're going to best know David, I think, from class uh, that was the, the hit really of the Dublin Theatre Festival uh, a couple of years ago and it is still flying around the place. We talk about it on the episode but it's hitting London very soon as well as Cardiff so make sure you go and check that out. It's a brilliant play, what a cast it is too. Um, it's starring Stephen Jones, former guest of the show. Sarah Morris hopefully future guest of the show uh, it's a beautiful beautiful play I absolutely adored it and as well uh, Easel Golden uh, and David I should say co-wrote it and co-directed it uh, which is I didn't know but um, what a team they are it's a really really beautiful play and a great piece of work so um, I implore you to go and see that one if you can it's really wonderful uh, as well as that Dave is a freelance director uh, you're going to know him from Beowulf the blockbuster by the brilliant Brian Burroughs as well as that uh, Hugh and Cry he's done with uh, Deirdre Kinnahan um, He's worked with Philly McMahon. I mean, he's done all sorts of wonderful, wonderful stuff. Uh, and I, I really admire his work from what I've seen of it. Uh, I'm sure there's people out there who've seen more of it than me. But uh, I guarantee you now, whenever uh, Dave's next piece of work uh, is out, I am first in line. Because having seen class, it was just like, right, this guy has his shit together. Uh, and we also play football together. So uh, I happen to know Dave has a mean left foot. Uh, in other news guys, go check out The Belly Button Girl. It's my play that I've written and it's uh, we've got a great cast assembled. It's a one man show so it's just me on stage. Sorry about that. But uh, we've got a wonderful cast. It's Romana Testaseca directing, uh, Ursula McGinn designing our set and the brilliant Owen Lennon uh, doing the lights. So look, we've got a great team there. It's all set up to uh, be a great run. It's the 14th of May to the 19th. Go and get your tickets now. Do it nice and early because I mean first of all, it uh, makes your diary look good, your calendar look full and I promise it alleviates some box office anxiety. Uh, in other news, guys, go see Copperface Jackson Musical. We're coming back for the summer. It's not for a while now, July, but um, look, get someone uh, an old birthday present, whatever it might be. It's a great show. Look, you're not going to regret this one. Uh, it's a pure laugh. Do you know what I mean? It's just great fun. It's by the brilliant Paul Howard, directed by Carl Harper. We've got an amazing cast there. So go and check that out. And as always, uh, if you're in a position to do so, go check out our Patreon page. It's patreon.com forward slash personality bingo. We've got a load of uh, different levels there. It starts from as little as two dollars a month if that means fuck all to you it means a great deal to us uh, not to be blunt about it but uh, no it does it, it's a massive deal when people are able to um, help us out and the podcast is just doing great at the moment it's going from strength to strength our numbers look great and uh, if you're in a position where a couple of euro doesn't make a huge difference in your life I promise it makes a massive one in ours and the running of this show so as Blind Boy says Patreon it's the model based off soundness if you can support please do but enough of all that please enjoy the wonderful David Horan playing Personality Bingo with Tom Moran. Dave Horn, ready to play personality bingo? Yep. All right, sweet. So a quick explanation of how it all works. I've got 60 minutes on the clock. I've got 60 balls in here and 60 corresponding questions. I've also given you a sheet of paper with five numbers on it. Would you do me a favour and read out the five? Sure. Uh, eight. Yes. 17. Right. 33. Okay. 53. Nice. 19. Lovely. I'm going to ask you for one more favour. Would you pick a sixth number, something between one and 60, that's not already there? 
12. 12, nice. You can scribble that down, number 12. Any reason? Uh, I've always been my favourite number. I think I like the look of it. Yeah. I like I was yeah I also like eleven because that was my football number. But, oh uh, yeah, yeah, but no twelve was kind of, uh, a lot of odd numbers in that list, so I thought about an even one. Yeah, good, 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 good. Yin to the yang, um, and I should say if all six of them numbers uh, do come out, that means the tables are turned. You get to ask me any question in the whole wide world, and I'll tell you the truth. Okay, sweet. All right, let's <laughs> give it a spin. Okay, here we go. First out the gate, it's number thirty-four. Do you have it? No, thirty-three. Okay, number. 34. How do you feel about being the age you currently are? Oh, wow. Uh, I feel okay about it, actually. I'm probably going to start worrying in a couple of years' time yet. Um, but uh, for me, life sort of uh, started in my 30s. I'm in that uh, I started feeling very sort of able to be the age I am. Mm. And uh, uh, and yet I'm not in the place where I'm worrying about being old yet. So yeah. that's pretty okay. Yeah, like it, that. It's an interesting thing. Like, did did you? Well, like, I'm 25 right now. So you have that weird. Like, 25 is one of them. Did you have those ages where, like, 25 for me, the start of 25. Don't want to say I had like a crisis, but I was kind of. It, it was like you're very much in your mid 20s as opposed to your early 20s. Like for most of your early 20s, you're like I'm just out of college, even though you could have been two, three years out of college. You know what I mean? Totally. All this sort of stuff. Did, have you had years like that that were little triggers for different anxieties and stuff? Well, I had a really baby face, so I spent most of my life wanting to be older, you know, the yeah, way. Um, yeah. Like, I couldn't get into pubs when I was a teenager because there just wasn't a chance. Bouncers used to laugh at me. Um, 29 was, uh, well, actually, I really worried about turning 30. Mm. Really worried about it. And then when I got there, it was completely fine. And I realised that actually I'd freaked out a bit turning 29 and I'd done the whole <laughs> sort of falling apart then yeah. and having the midlife crisis or whatever it is um, so by the time 30 came I'd actually sorted it out during the year but uh, but and this is often the way I don't know about you but I often don't realise what's going on with me until I look backwards and go oh I was going through a thing there right. so it was only when I turned 30 and it was totally fine I'm uh, and I really enjoyed uh, my 30th and really enjoyed being 30 after that that I realised actually I'd been really stressed for the year before that and mm-hmm. um, yeah, and probably it was financial more um, or a feeling that needed to be more secure or stable, which uh, is that kind of thing. Um, but I've never really felt the I need to have achieved more thing um, uh, because I, I've always sort of felt as long as you're learning or, or feel like you're progressing, then that's kind of the joy of it, really. So um, so I haven't heard, felt that pressure yet. Maybe I will in the next <laughs> yeah. few years. I don't know. Um, yeah, that's really interesting about like the financial end of it as well as that because there are like weird goalposts and especially like in like the line of what we do that you know you have all your peers and whatever hitting these you know life milestones often financially sometimes. And I mean, like financial stability can sort of lead to other areas of stability, like families, kids, relationships, yeah. whatever it is. Do you feel like because of, you know, the nature of what you do as a writer, as a director, all this sort of stuff that it, um, what's the word that it like maybe influences? If, if you didn't do that, do you think you'd have different goals in those departments of life? Like, for example, finance, whatever that might be. Well, I wonder uh in terms of i find my job very meaningful mm-hmm. um and uh, uh so i have good relationships i'm uh, happy with where i am on that front i'm married um very happily so but um uh i do wonder if if i didn't find such sort of spiritual nourishment in in my work would th- would i be looking for more outside if you know what i mean mm. um but uh 
no, what it was was when I was about 27, 28, I started to notice that my friends from my college group who didn't go into the arts uh, were starting to set up things. Or ha- It was only then I realized the sacrifice you're making moving into an arts and an arts wage right. um, and uh, by then it was too late yeah. <laughs> and I wondered I did wonder around 27, 28 I wondered would I make the same choice if I'd known um, what the thing was I eventually I feel very solidly that I probably would have mm. um, but it is interesting that you often make these decisions before you know or certainly for me um, I've tended not to kind of know what the next phase of life's going to be like but around 29 I was just aware that if there wasn't a certain level of knowing you could pay the rent for the next good few months as mm-hmm. opposed to just the next two months, um, that thinking about the other things, thinking about getting married, um, being um, uh, laying down roots wouldn't be possible if you're still wa- wondering hand to And And I look around in the arts and I see lots of people who are managing that in lots of different ways, but it's a stress. Mm-hmm. I'd say it's a stress on everybody. Yeah, and then... Like what did that? <clears throat> so you you have that moment at like twenty seven or whatever where you, where you 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 notice that, and then what like practically speaking, because it, it's hard to actually make that step into being like okay, I realize that I find like financial instability or or that not knowingness about our career path like difficult, but it's actually very difficult to remedy that as well because it's so inherent in 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 what it looks like. Totally, it is. Yeah, um, and I was lucky in that I always. Well, quite early on, I, there seems to be a cycle in artwork where you need to have a new idea every year mm. uh, in terms of the way funding goes or the way programming of theatres go or uh, yeah, funding for films and all that sort of stuff. Um, and very early on, I looked at that going, I can't have a good idea every year. <laughs> um, so I, I wanted from the off to find ways of making sure I didn't have to. Um, so I started teaching when I was way too young to teach, um, teaching acting or teaching directing. Mm. Um, and or um, and I was open to the idea, I think around 28, 29, um, is when I took over Bewley's. I was, and I was open to the idea of that, which was a like uh, from a management and accounting and all those sort of side of things was a big development of skills I didn't have prior to that. Mm. Um, but I wasn't scared of it because I thought this will take some pressure off having to always have the next idea. Now, now I'm sitting here with like if if I could I have five or six or seven or eight ideas I'd love to be able to roll out tomorrow if I could find a way of doing them. Right. But um, I think it's the other thing that's helpful is to want whatever play or film or piece of writing you're working on to survive for longer than its first iteration to come back the following year if mm. possible. I was always kind of looking to see if that if the work could be of a standard that would merit coming back. You know. Sure. And then. That in, that's really interesting the idea of one good idea a year because I've actually never heard it articulated like as plainly as that but that there's a lot to be said for that when when you say that like you, so you're saying then well, I can't like guarantee I'm going to have a good idea every year which I'm sure any creative person can like relate to yeah. you know what I mean but how do you it's a real simplification of the whole process no, but there we are totally <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but it's, it's almost so simple it's useful to talk about <laughs> yeah. because how do you then merit like what am I trying to say when you're in that place and you're like right I I I know I have this is maybe let me frame it within myself sure. I, I've had a really good idea and I know it's good and it's you know developed and it's in that that point now where you know I'm trying to get it made and trying to get full mm-hmm. and all that stuff and it feels like a good idea to me very inherently but yeah now the next line of like you know deadlines and stuff is coming towards you and you're like I don't want to let that pass because uh, that just doesn't feel like 
maybe the best thing to do. Yet at the same time, I don't want to like shoehorn a kind of average thing that my heart isn't in in the same way. And that if I'm being really honest with myself, I probably don't believe in quite the same way. It just doesn't speak to me talking about like spiritually being mm-hmm. fulfilled by what you do. It doesn't speak to me in the same way. Like, um, but you, how do you reconcile that? Does that ring true to you? Oh yeah. And uh, I think, and I'm one to do it. I'm one to go, well, if the opportunity's there, let's do it. Um, uh, and and I've never really suffered from that. I've never turned around and gone, do you know what, you blew that one by going too early. Because um, often you'll try and you still don't get the funding. So you're forced, your hand is forced to wait the extra year anyway or right. or, or the extra three years. Um, so, but I on the other side of that, I tend to now in particular the idea needs to have stuck around for a good time before I actually think uh, that's something I'm going to go for now Mm. uh, most of the time in that if it's a play I've read that I want to direct uh, there's always an instant oh my god this is great how do I get this on now Um, and and I'll still look at those ideas but often that won't come off Um, and the process of having to wait to get something on can be very helpful Mm. in in terms of then because you uh, in terms of the writing specifically you write like different things you've written like uh, films for TV for theatre do you have a filtration process for when an idea pops in or the grain of something to then be like okay what is this actually meant to be a little bit but when it comes to the screen stuff usually we were approached by the screen company Mm. Um, but when I worked with Inish which was sort of through my 20s we had this theatre company and myself and Isolt are still our Inish theatre whether we we don't always use the name Mm. um, but we always use the email address Mm. um, and the bank account because that's easier administratively but um, uh, we started off by adapting stuff from other mediums so we adapted poems into a play and we adapted a Jane Austen novella into a play so that made you very aware of oh look what a novel does look what poems do but look what plays need and theatricality need mm. um, and then we made the speed dating play Tick My Box and that was the first one that got interest from screen companies they came to us and wanted and were interested to know if we turn into TV and so we we're instantly then aware, oh, well, they'll have to open out. Um, um, there's a load of material here, but it wouldn't be a one-off. We'd have to create more material. Um, and it was from those conversations that we ended up uh, pitching to adapt um, uh, Oscar Wilde's plays for screen. So my point being that it was the other way around. It's not like the idea in, in all the screen stuff, it was already thinking how to move this towards screen rather than the idea was fresh and for screen. Right. And now we've got a few pitches that are fresh and for screen, but... Um, our experiences in making those Oscar Wilde things told us that because uh, you get a lot of notes in this in the screenwriting world mm. that you really need to have your own abilities developed well because you need to know what you're standing for uh, in, in response to those sort of things. And also we wanted to keep hold of the direction of the of the scripts from then on because we didn't direct either of those things. And the only way to do that is to absolutely own the idea. Mm-hmm. So we moved back to theatre and, and, and writing theatre to develop the writing s- skills but to develop the voice and we probably wouldn't go back to screen without insisting that we had uh, control over the directing sure interesting so, yeah so the ideas usually are something you want to talk about and then I'd be more open to adapting it to which to the medium it's going for mm-hmm. rather than having an idea and knowing oh that's for that medium yeah and do you find that like talking about the fulfillment that you know the work gives you do you find it's different depending on the medium, like say, you know, the screen writing versus theatre writing versus being a director in a room. How how does that all translate or is it all very much, you know, feeding the same part of you? Mostly it's feeding the same part. Uh, 
I loved um, Jess Butterworth was interviewed recently and he described being a screenwriter as the same as being a sperm donor. <laughs> he said, you just go off to your little room there and do that thing that we're all slightly ashamed and embarrassed about. <laughs> well, and then uh, and then give us the thing that you've made and then feck off. We don't want you around for the rest of the process. <laughs> well, 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 well. That's been our experience of screenwriting. Yeah. Um, I thought that's very true. Um, uh, in the main, even though we loved our collaborators, etc. But you do realise that you're slightly surplus to ideas, to not, surplus to requirements. Um, Which once, is crazy. Once it goes into production, yeah. That's crazy. But yeah, but it's it's a lot of moving parts, a huge amount of moving mm-hmm. parts, etc. And uh, and we were making a movie and a TV series for, for young people and the movie was for TV. So the budgets were tight and it wasn't a sort of uh, funded idea based, but it was really TV led. It was need led as opposed to artist led. Mm. It's really interesting though because I've heard like I I'm, I'm fascinated with screenwriting and it, it's something that I love doing and I but I'm so in, like I listen to a lot of podcasts with screenwriters and I've heard this idea that they like that that would be a feeling that a lot of them have and then maybe then like you know they we talk about like the golden age of television and stuff and you hear of these you know showrunners in in the yeah. states in particular oh, yeah. you know and, and I mean you, you see maybe more and more in, in the UK maybe it's starting to happen a little bit here but oh I love hate right Stuart Carlin well, Stuart Carlin mm-hmm. yeah I mean and like one of like um you know the oh Mercurio uh, the guy who does the Line of Duty show do you watch that on oh, BBC yeah. oh, well Je- I watch it when Jez- Gogglebox watches oh yeah yeah okay okay really good but like this this kind of thing but it's mad to me that like when when someone's so fundamental to like the you know the the beginning of an idea that like surely they just know if there if there are problems which they're naturally going to be and like as you said it is such a like I'm always like even as someone who works as an actor, you look at whenever I look at like a list of credits at the end of a film, I'm like, where do these people come from? Because it, it really is like that yeah, many people. It's such an army of people to make one of those things. Yeah, totally. Yeah, like the, the, that whole army would be null and void if it didn't start with the screenwriter. Really? Yeah. I suppose it has a lot to do with money and it has a lot to do with things that change all the day in the moment. But um, And I think the culture is changing. But it was a really big new idea, wasn't it? When Was it Netflix were the first people to do the show on our thing? I, I, I'm, I, I'm not as well versed in it. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it seems crazy. Um, but on the other hand, I suppose it can go the other way. Like it's often not acknowledged how great the writers, these auteur directors are. So mm-hmm. they're writers themselves and they're screenwriters. Yeah. And, and, and so if something's not working, they can bail it out in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, the showrunner idea I just the amount that they write like the idea of 22 series uh, 22 episodes in a series that's an hour long like mm. that's 22 plays and the quality um, and and the what would be the word the consistency even when it's not all written by the same writer when other team writers are coming in they must be so skilled these people I, like, yeah I think that's how a lot of it works is, and like that's so interesting like I wonder I wonder will that come into you know, being over here because you, you don't really hear of like writers' rooms here, but like over there, I think that's the thing that it will go through. You know, a certain amount of drafts with like the team and the showrunner has the final pass on it, so they'll you know. I think it all comes down to money. Yeah, it all comes down to yeah. like these things. That was because the showrunner was bought. It was uh, was an idea that was brought in the age of DVD sales. Mm. They suddenly. Uh, people were buying it was the f- before Netflix came along so it, this idea of binge watching was just new because you could buy the whole series on DVD right. and it was like this w- extra almost billion dollars that the industry was receiving mm. because if something was that popular it would get bought in bulk by people I remember buying my West Wing series my Mad Men series and and just not being able to keep up the Wire series which I never got through yeah, yeah, <laughs> even yeah. though I know it's brilliant yeah. and the Sopranos um, but I think that extra money but Ireland hasn't experienced that extra money so maybe it will mm. like I'd, I've 
don't really know. I'm not versed enough to know. Did Love Hate manage to syndicate and therefore make money beyond its original? But there's no way with the small audience sure. that you get in an Irish in a you know half a million maximum to going to watch a show uh, that you can afford a team of writers. Of I course, think. yeah. I presume that's why. Yeah, but yeah. I'm guessing. I'm guessing. I don't really know. Yeah, you're probably right. Have you ever had that moment though? Talk about the you know the work feeding you and getting that feeling of like yes, like this actually like means something and it's meaningful to me. And then have you ever had that moment throughout like your career where, where that hasn't been there in the same way it has? You know the way they talk about that moment as like an actor, as a footballer, as anything like, you know, those pre-show nerves, pre-match nerves, like if you're at the top level or whatever you're at and when they go away, they're like, that's the time you need to start asking questions. Have you ever had a creative equivalent of that? Oh yeah, so I've been lucky that I've I've always sort of believed in the work. Um, I've had big frights when the work hasn't connected the way I expected it to, and often that's on shows that you're really hopeful for. Um, and uh, sometimes you've been able to fix that in previews. Other times I've been lucky enough to bring the show back and, and make it connect more on the second outing. Mm. Um, and uh, and. And even if you don't fully correct it on the, uh, thankfully they've usually had a second outing, you'd be able to clearer understand what it was that was confusing or, or wasn't connecting or, or had been missed, uh, was 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 a, a bad idea in the first place. Um, so then I've always had the sort of positive response of being able to go, oh, well, I know why that happened, so I've learned. And uh, and you do de- develop a thick skin. As I remember being like late in my 20s and my auntie, who was like an actuary, mm. um, ended up on the in the newspapers just a profile was written on she was doing a part of some fund uh, not a hedge fund but something like that um and it hadn't performed well and out of nowhere a journalist had sort of written a profile saying this hasn't done well Mm. and i remember my auntie finding out really hard to suddenly be called out in public um which is fine she got over it all good but uh I was there going, Jesus, I've had such worse reviews in the national papers and my granny and granddad were alive to read them, you know, Um, and and it didn't bother me. But I suppose that's the nature of the work. And and is that like, does it not bother you? Uh, It bothers you for a day or two, but usually, no, um, uh, thankfully, I'm able to get over it. Mm -hmm. Um, And usually if it's part of a process where you feel like uh, there's merit to it and or and then if you feel like there's no merit to it, you can push it off eventually. Yeah, totally. Totally right. Let's give it another spin. Okay. Where are we at? Okay, next out the gate, it's number 21. Do you have it? Uh, no. No worries. No, no. Uh, number 21. Uh, what's the biggest, uh, what do you believe the biggest misconception about directing to be? Uh, well, it's probably that you spend a huge amount of your time in rehearsal with actors teasing out the detail of performance and what moments mean. And then in the end, when people see direction, your bigger decisions, as in your design and and the mise-en-scene, is, uh, is, is what's most overtly seen as you're directing. Mm. So the the entire invisible direct part of directing <laughs> remains invisible, which it seems to be called invisible directing, I suppose. Uh, but as su- I'm surprised at the level to which... Uh, all of that work, which is so, which you spend so much more time on, yeah. um, uh, do, doesn't seem to get seen in the same way all the time. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, because like, and like, frankly, like, all that credit will go to the actor. 
Oh, and I have no problem with that. And the actor, uh, has, in my experience, is always so generous and enjoys that room and enjoys the director that will do that detailed work mm. with them. Um, I, and they'll speak glowingly about a director, but the direction won't necessarily be seen for that. Mm. And that was a surprise. Yes. Has there along the way been a lesson that you've learnt or a nugget or that you either learned yourself or someone um, imparted to you that, that, that sticks out about directing? Um... I've, well, one I, one I've always taken. Uh, actually, my English teacher back doing my leaving cert said you can only study for a B plus. Um, that uh, if you if the questions come up or the muse is there on the day, you might get an A. But really, you can only study well enough to be be a solid B. Um, wow. And uh, I still think the same about you can do your uh, rehearse well, make all your decisions, be as rigorous, cast as well as you can, work with the best collaborators and designers. Um, and then if the magic happens, then the magic kind of happens. And that's great. But uh, you, that's not necessarily something you can be in control of. Yeah. So you have to get used to the idea that there's no control. And I used to be envious of screen directors because I thought, oh, well, they can own it. They can edit it down and, and own the thing. Um, but I realized so many of their decisions are compromised on the day of the shoot. Mm. Um, and then I was really delighted to hear that there's all sorts of problems sometimes with the uh, syncing up of sound and light on premieres and things like that, that actually the screen uh, projections can be too dark and uh, there's all sorts of things. So even they can't sit back and go, I made this work, here we go, um, and and know what they have. Right, yeah, 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 interesting. And what about then from the, the writing end of things? Uh, firstly, maybe like a misconception you think people have about writers and writing. Oh, um Oh, um, a misconception about writers and writing. Well, uh, do people really understand writing is rewriting? Um, like we we say that all the time, but yeah. um, I wonder to the extent people understand what that means. Mm. Um, and uh, but actually, I don't think. But that just shows you, even though I write a lot, I don't think about the plight of the writer the same way. Right. Um. Uh. I suppose if writing in theatre or in screen, it's going to be mediated through so many hands before you see it. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, um, I'm not aware of any uh, major... Uh, because actually, when we hail writers, I, I, I like that we do. I like that we respect them to the extent that we do. And I think it's a very um, generous act to... Because what a writer's doing is saying, this is a way I see, the, see my world, mm -hmm. um, see the world through my eyes, which I think is really... Uh, courageous um, and can be really nourishing to anybody who sees and goes oh good I'm not alone I see it that way too or oh I oh I get it yes it could be like that for somebody else I now understand what that experience might be I think that's huge right so then this is interesting to me I've never written with someone and you were talking about like uh, you know writing with Isolt and, and, and that collaboration has been so fruitful over the years but that like as you said filtering the way you like see the world uh, how does that work when you've got to filter that through two sets of eyes and what are the the, the benefits I suppose and the challenges of that? Um, we the benefits are well it was only possible because we evolved as Isolt was originally just an actress I say just, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, was an actor um, and uh, and I was a director and we formed a company and we created work from devising. So there was a text somewhere else, like a play or a no like a book or a novel or a poem. Mm -hmm. And then we tried to turn that into theatre. Um, and we used, then when we then when we started creating original work, we used like Commedia dell'arte for improvisations that we would have been using the work Annie Ryan and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so 
so our writing or our, our view on the world, of, our view on plays evolved together, let's say. So uh, there's a collaboration there. But also in the, in the initial stages when we wrote together, we would do um, workshops with actors saying this is the general idea of what we're, we're trying to do. And we don't know what the story is or anything like that. But we were, we'd set up scenarios and, and, and play, mm. which meant that we'd seen that together. And even though it was five years between those initial workshops and the final uh, iteration of class that we wrote, um, having some sense of seeing the, that world the same way and, and having seen the similar where the ideas came from, we understand what each other's going for a lot more, I think. Mm. The downside of what we discovered is that if you over agree too much, this is what you're going to do. Um, you leave less room for happy accidents and for inspiration or for a mad idea to find its way into the mix. So uh, in that process, which was which was surprisingly long because we had other projects and we were working on other things as well. Mm. Um, we did at some point <coughs> receive the advice that it'd be good to write separate drafts and then bring them back together. Um, and, and so we did do that. And that was helpful because it meant that we could each go in, make much bigger breakthroughs and then come back and argue the toss over why something worked or something didn't. Interesting. And were you surprised at how alike and or different those separate drafts were to each other? Uh, no. It made perfect sense in terms of what I was interested in, what Esalt was interested in and what and where uh, where her eye was in terms of make sure we don't drop the ball on that character and where my eyes make sure we don't drop the ball on that character. You know, so... Mm. Uh, um, no, not at all. What You know, what was surprising is that... <coughs> If there was something in Esalt's script that I didn't like, um, and I would suggest it, uh, that through um, or vice versa, through finding out, well, oh, why don't you like that? Okay, but why did you do it? Mm. Oh, well, that's a good reason <coughs> to do that thing. So actually, um, if that's not, I don't like that for that reason. But what about something like this, which does the same thing and then is convenient for both? You know. Yeah, and then when you take it into the rehearsal room. Is Isol still there or is she separate? Oh, yeah, no, we co-directed. <gasps> we we co-everything on this. You've got the cops. I've got the cops. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <coughs> Just listen to me choke for a minute. Tears streaming <laughs> from my eyes. <coughs> I think I'm good now. Are you good? That was a good one, I think. We've no water in here. I know. Ah, all good. State of this. Yeah. Who's hosting this podcast? That's all good. <coughs> oh, you got tears now. I know, yeah. I can drink <laughs> I can drink my tears. It's going to be fine. Yeah, yeah. But you co-directed as well. Yeah. I didn't actually realise that. Yeah, I thought, no, oh, we did. And we co-produced. Um, mm. So it was t- mm. everything completely shared 50-50 down the way. Yeah. And then when it goes to different, you know, it's uh, it's been to Edinburgh and to, where was it in the UK again? Uh, so we're going to London now. Oh, it's going to London. So we're going to the bush next Brilliant. month. Uh, we're going to the bush uh, from May 7th to June 1st. And we're going to, we have a week in Cardiff just before that. Um in the Millennium Centre there. Uh, so that's the last week, April, first week of May. Yeah, first to the seventh. And in terms of, because I, I saw it like in the, I saw it in its first iteration in the new theatre, right? That yeah. Was, yeah, and I mean, it blew me away. I thought it was brilliant. I should have oh. said that at the very start. Oh, but um, Thank you. Uh, it was really gorgeous. But it, it, like it, it is, you know, they're, they're two obviously characters from Dublin and, you know, it, like it, they, I guess, for, you know, growing up in in like the city, you just recognise those those people. You see mm. them on the street. Then you take it to somewhere uh, like Edinburgh, for example. And I mean, you've got people from all over the world there. But like, I imagine, was it that experience that people were just like, I mean, this could be set anywhere. It was surpri- yeah, we hoped it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were surprised the extent it was. 
Uh, in fact, some of the biggest, and, then, and that just might be the nature of the people, but Americans kept coming up to us in the lobby because in the Traverse, the way it is, there's a bar right outside. So, um, and audiences are waiting at Edinburgh to go to the next show that's an hour, that's on an hour afterwards yeah. and an hour afterwards. But it means your actors come out and decide to get a glass of water or whatever. And so I'm not visible. I would, nobody would know what I look, but they end up approaching the actors. Right. And Americans from all parts of America would come up and thank them and say, we have the same issues. We totally see those characters and that was really phenomenal wow. um, and uh, so be uh, we, th- we thought because it's co- it's class uh, we thought the British would probably get it with the class system but we'll still be very interested to see how it goes down in London now um, uh, in the bush uh, because the bush is an area Shepherd's Bush is an area which has a lot of invisible barriers it's a really metropolitan area of, mm. of England and uh, their programming has been about these issues but usually with uh, people from different nationalities so it'll be very interesting to see how it lands Interesting and then so in terms of like now obviously it's been you know a huge success and I you know just when you were coming in I was like you know doing a little Google and seeing what was going on and I mean like the reviews are all outstanding like four stars and the Guardian five, it's all four and five stars you know and I mean more importantly like the audiences like love it I mean having seen it and been in a room with other people you could sense that you get a sense of it over social media whatever how does that affect then the creative process going forward and you're like okay like you and you know Isil sit down and you're like what's next and obviously you don't want to let like the success of your previous piece inform what you're doing next in a way of like you yeah. can't live up to you can, obviously can't think creatively that way but I'm sure well you tell me where's your head at uh, well there's an interesting thing on all that I, I actually I'll go back I did a show with Brian Burroughs called Beowulf's Blockbuster yep. that was a bit special for us because we'd had a long standing uh, collaboration Brian has been a movement director uh, for me ever since I came back from Le Coq um, and uh, theatre school um, which is a physical theatre school and uh, he has helped make a load of shows with me and often I'd get the credit as a director for work he'd done <laughs> sure. um, and then he came to me with his show in a bag idea and asked me would I help and I really wanted it to go well and so there was um, so we worked really hard but we had so much fun and then it went down well and we ended up one night in New York playing the Irish Arts Centre mm. and they had put Brian up in a lovely um, uh, apartment or, or a, yeah I think it was an apartment uh, you know in one of those skyscraper buildings in the middle of Manhattan um, whereas I was staying with my sister because she lives upstate New York and it was a chance to visit her but for one night I decided to stay and kipped on his couch mm. inside his apartment and I remember saying, this is great and all, but you know what? This is not as much fun as we had in the rehearsal room uh, when we were making the show, that that was actually the best bit. Um, I, this might seem like a segue, but similarly, I've had reasons to be thinking back to the first rehearsals of class and even the night of the first preview and myself and he's going, do you think this is going to work? And genuinely being really unsure of it. And uh, because... There's adults playing kids. There's a split timeline. Um, and just there's so much that you hope reads and the people will see what you're at, but might not. Um, and we'll go back into the rehearsal room soon and we'll be just as worried that we won't have it as full and as rich as it's been. So there's always a feeling that you might lose, as, you know, um, uh, but we've been a super cast and uh, uh, so on. So the fear goes down, but it's still always there. My point being that actually... E, the success is the process it's not actually the nice reviews to the same extent because they last a very short amount of time and you're kind of aware that 
you didn't 100% know in the making of it that it would work. You just knew that you had a real desire to say something. Yeah. Um, so to, so the so going forward, it's to have the same sense of desire and excitement to say something um, and uh, and and then hopefully it'll it'll turn out the same in the wash. But uh, actually, because there's not a great sense of achievement, you never sit back and go, oh, yeah, that you, or, or if you do, it's fleeting. And um, so it doesn't actually. Well, for me, I'm not feeling any pressure, but also maybe it's because we made a lot of plays and a lot of films before we got to class. Mm. So it wasn't like our first thing was a huge hit and now we have to follow it up with our second album. This is, that was like our 10th album. Right. That's really interesting. Okay. And then, so obviously one of the, the like standout characteristics from class is obviously the way it deals with social issues but with a really great sense of humour and I'm sure one of the things that everyone was saying to you, certainly my experience of it was like, it was like when that kind of work is done skillfully, you know, you never feel preached at. Like, mm. you, there's just a message left, and it's kind of undeniable. Like, you know, if you're watching, you're like, yeah, I see that. Yeah. Um, is is that a th- a theme that's been like throughout your career? Because class was the first uh, play of yours that I saw. Yeah. Is that something that's throughout your career, or something that like you want to go like? Can you look at your, you know, your career and what you're interested in as an artist and see like overarching themes that are, are kind of always there? Uh, n- probably not because uh, for a huge start, start of, for a huge section at the beginning of my directing career, I would have been more reactive. I would have been uh, because I just wanted to get shows on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if actors came to me with an idea and they were willing to produce or uh, or if a theatre company came to me saying we want to do this, I was I was really happy to get, get on board with whatever they were because I was scared of specialising too soon because mm-hmm. I really came out of university feeling like, that I that I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't have the skills yet, um, and uh, so for a long time I was trying everything, um, and then and I even you know five years in went off and studied for a year in Paris and Lecoq to to get more skills and and mm. kind of try to do that every five years is, is take something else on. So it's only in the latter years, in the last five or six years, that I've that maybe everything that I've done has been absolutely my decision to do it. Mm. Um, I, but with Esalt, definitely we've always wanted the work to to live on many levels. We've always wanted to be accessible. We've always wanted to make each other laugh and make audiences laugh um, uh, because it, it engages. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I think everybody kind of knows that that's the case um, or that you need the sugar to if you're going to put down any uh, medicine as, at the same time. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Totally. Right, let's give another spin. Okay, here we go. Next up, it's number 33. Do you have oh, it? Oh, yeah, do you want Way. There you go. Uh, number 33. Oh, fat lady. One fat lady? 33? No. Um, no, it's 88. It's the two fat lady. Body positive lady, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> 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 number 33. Uh, um, where are we? Oh, yeah. Uh, are you the oldest, youngest, or middle child in your family? Middle child, but only boy. Okay. So I think that offsets things, doesn't it? A bit. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in that, um, yeah, so uh, I have a sister who's two years older than me and a younger sister who's six years younger than me. Um, so she came along and I was well into school. I, I imagine that I got into, actually, I think my mom said it one night, uh, that, got into, that she was, you know, missing having a baby when I went off to school and therefore along came my next sister. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, middle child, um, well, all I know is that I would watch my older sister in, you know, uh, family gatherings and things like that and kind of go, how does she know how to talk to adults? Y- you know, because I had her to do all that for me. 
So uh, I always felt a bit late to the party on the adult stuff when mm. it came around. And, and because I had a baby face as well, it wasn't like I was exposed to adult scenarios until I was actually an adult. And then I was looking around to people my own age who knew how to do things like oh, how to behave in a pub. Oh, right. You know how to do this. This is as if you're to the manner born. Whereas I'm like pretending and I'm ordering bass because <laughs> I like the ad on telly. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, that kind of thing. So uh, so I certainly early on, I felt like I was catching up. And um, so in terms of where I came as a child, I wonder, is that is that partly responsible that I was able to let my sister go first? Interesting. And do you find like the way you relate to a sister two years older versus six years younger? Like, is are those relationships quite different or are they pretty similar in the way you all interact? Oh no, yeah, they are different uh, in that you're just closer to the one that you were closer to. Sure. Like Jane was a baby um, and she was a really cute baby. So I always adored her. Uh, but it, it, there's a distance there in terms of experience. So mm. uh, funnily enough, I moved out when I got to university um, and uh, uh, in second year I moved out. And uh, my sister also moved uh, abroad once she graduated. So it meant that when my little sister turned 12, she suddenly became an orphan or like became an only child. Sure. That we were gone for a bit. I am. Um, uh, whereas I still like, obviously, I, I, my, I grew up in swords, so I moved into town as old. Um, but uh, my older sister missed those adolescent years uh, of my younger sister. And it took them a while to get over that gap because she would still think of her as 12 when she was 16. You know, that, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, whereas at least I was kind of there to see all of that. But then my little sister has gone into um, finance um, and uh, I think she uh, thinks of her, herself as my older sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. Totally. Um, so, uh, so they are very different relationships. And then when, you know, talking about that that notion of, you know, seeing people interact with adults and like, how do you do that? And that, that whole like baby face thing and just, when did that start to like, when, when was the first, was college one of the moments where and moving out? Like, what was that the moment when you first kind of felt like, OK, no, I am a real adult or like when did that come or has it ever come or where? I think it took all the way to my 30s. Yeah, actually, I, like I got on well with adults, but um, and, and my peers and all the rest of it, and, and because I'd be playful and be be sort of my optimistic uh, open self I hope mm-hmm. um, but uh, but I would know that inside I would be unsure of where I am or, or what's expected of me in certain situations um, uh, but I was very comfortable in sort of mentor uh, mentor mentee relationships in that time so I would have always had I would have gone on well with uh, prof- um, like the professors in college or, or the tutors I should say and uh, and directors that I assisted and I am um, and similarly I started teaching early and I, I, I'd be quite good at being a mentor to somebody else as well mm. you know, um, uh, in terms of being able to see oh I see what you're struggling with I've been through that because because I had to work it out <laughs> so so I'd be helpful if you want to know this is what I thought about how that worked out let's say um, and but it took probably to my 30s for me to to go and basically to actually be an adult to once once I'd had the experiences fully and digest them for myself. And um, so I think of myself or I did for years as a younger soul mm. and kind of looked around and going, there's other people that seem to have a better handle on that. Yeah. And what do you think it is about like like that transition from 20s to 30s? Because like and even just in popular culture and like, like how many how many like TV shows and stuff are there about like, you know, like 20 something year olds struggling in, 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 in life and love or whatever it is. And then like, you know, what is it about that transition from 20s to 30s that seems to clarify things for people? I wonder, it's a sh- like it's a shorthand because I'm sure people who actually experience the things 
in their teens sometimes that I did had to wait in my 30s to get. But uh, things like uh, suddenly realizing there's people you need to mind, mm. uh, including yourself, that uh, that if you don't mind yourself, you'll fall off uh, the rails or whatever it might be. Mm. But um, time suddenly becomes difficult to manage, that you have uh, different people with different needs from you, including your family, your friends, uh, your relationship, your work. Um, and the balance of that seems to become much more consuming, I think. Whereas maybe in the 20s, you're able to focus more on your job and the other things look after themselves and aren't as needful. Mm. If you're lucky, though, like, I'm, you know, there's people have grown up, uh, you know, minding their little brothers and sisters from a very young age yep. or and all of those sort of scenarios. And uh, thankfully, um, things came in the times where I was ready for them, I feel. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Right, let's give it a spin. Here we go. Number 25. Do you have it? Oh, no, no, thought I did. No worries. Number 25. Um, what is your most treasured relationship with someone over the age of 65? Ah, um, that would probably be uh, Hilary Wood now, who is the head of acting at The Lear. Um, so The Lear started eight years ago and she was head of acting and I was the other core acting technique teacher. So for the first two years of that, um, I was paid to both p teach my own classes and to shadow hers. Mm. And she would have been, um, so she'd run, was head of acting at Weber Douglas for 30 years. Um, and uh, uh, she was coming over from London every week um, to teach the classes and going back. So she would have been complete fish out of water in terms of Irish theatre and having seen anything or knowing any... Um, any of the movers and shakers in Irish theatre, which on one level is a, is a benefit uh, and on another level there was stuff for her to learn. But it meant that in that, particularly in those first two years when the academy was still only 15, then 30 students, uh, we would go into the staff room and there wouldn't be any other teachers there because there was no need for another teacher because there was no other classes right. initially. So we we ended up having all sorts of chats about the nature of theatre and the nature of acting. Um, and she was an actor herself. So, um, and I feel really secure about that. I think that's really helpful that the head of acting is an, is an actor because, you know, I'm teaching acting technique at the Lear, but I'm a director. Mm. Um, uh, and though I've been an acting tr student myself, I, I, I fall back on that um, experience that she has. But I suppose a really t tender um, and rich relationship was born out of that um, and it's evolved then over time because uh, because I end up having to teach more independently um, uh, there are so many classes now there's so many things going on mm. um, and, uh, and and Hillary has this amazing relationship with her students she doesn't kind of have it anywhere else in her in the world as far as I can see because um, she's she's in her 70s now and mm. she's so alive and she teaches these classes that go on for four hours and she uh, rehearses like full days which will be 12 contact hours and she, and she doesn't tire in any way because she gets such energy from them and you can see the students all respond so amazingly to her and to that um, and I feel like if you haven't seen her in the room with the students, you don't fully understand exactly. But but you can see it in the glow of the students that come out of the Lear and their, their sense of excitement in the work, mm. uh, which is her. Um, and uh, isn't always visible uh, because, you know, she's British and um, and she's been around the work for so long. So she has uh, very clear opinions of what, what it should be. Um, 
but then when you actually see her work it's a it's a much more um tenuous uh slippy thing um but it's full of mischievousness and and delight um mm. and uh and yeah that's been very dear i suppose wow and then so earlier in the chat you mentioned that you started teaching when you were too young what what, what do you mean by that Oh, just the goal to teach an adult acting class when you're 24. So you right. you could have people like it was only part time classes in different places. Um, but you know you had people in their 40s um trying out acting for the first time. Um, and and basically what happened is my I had I had a part time job as a a telemarketer. Mm. Um, actually tele sales. Um, uh, and the company moved to Tipperary, so no job. Right. Um, and I just wondered could I make my money uh, from and part-time work that was inside the industry and teaching was the way it seemed to work out mm. um, and and I went back and started teaching some of the directing courses at Trinity as well which I thought was quite beneficial maybe not quite as young as 24 but um, it was not that long since I'd been through the course myself but I'd felt that there were things that I wished someone had told me that I only discovered on the outside so um, so I felt I didn't feel 100% ready to step into that room and be that person. But then when you get there, you realize, oh, once let's get up and do the work. And then you can see from, from, uh, that being an outside eye, that you have stuff to offer and that you have things to help people. Mm. Um, and as long as you're sensitive to what people need, um, uh, then, then it's something that you can do. And what were some of the things that you wish you'd been told when you were within it and you were able to impart once you came back? Uh, well, they, at the time, this is a long time ago, so not talking about anybody who's there now, but at the time, um, the academic Beckett Centre uh, Theatre Studies course would have probably put more focus on world building in terms of and where meaningfulness lies in, in the creation of theatre, but specific moment to moment work with actors um, and, uh, and, and with the text was less the job right so we didn't get down and dirty with the with actors and we weren't even given professional actors or, or actors of um so you were working with your peers which is good mm. but uh but there was a huge amount of detail there that uh that i only discovered was helpful as i moved on out or and you know had a natural uh love of it and love of doing it but didn't know what it was that i was doing on um until getting out into and trying to work on projects outside of college and now like having taught for for as long as you have, when you look back at those early days, like what what do you th- see that the biggest arc in in your learning or the biggest changes that you've made or the biggest lessons you've learned as a teacher? Oh, as a teacher, um, I suppose initially you're kind of doing it on instinct, and I had felt very uncomfortable with any sense that uh, because I because I did feel young, um. I felt uncomfortable in any sense that I had all the answers mm. uh, and that my opinion was the best opinion um, or, so, and any idea that uh, of becoming a guru didn't appeal to me at all um, and so one of the best things was so many things that I learned from uh, the year in France but um, uh, w- while one of the best things I learned was that they refer a lot to the pedagogy probably too much it's very French mm. the pedagogy blah 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 but, but what they mean is the the exercises that they set um, um, uh, in and of themselves are the teaching. Mm. So then the teacher might give you very helpful um, advice around those exercises. But in the end, the exercises and how you personally respond to them as an artist is what will develop you as an artist. Okay. Um, and that made me feel 
much more comfortable because suddenly I went, okay, it doesn't all stop with me. Like, I'll hopefully then be helpful and not say anything, do no harm, <laughs> not to anything that would ever uh, impede someone's development. Right. But that if I set these exercises, then it then on one level I can trust, it can throw back on the actor or on the student director or theatre maker that uh, it's, um, it's, it's what they want to take from it will develop them in and of itself. Mm. Um, you know, that's that said, the Lecoq has a competitive environment that is not always easy for people. You know, if you don't choose to jump up on the floor and try something out, nobody's going to force you um, right. uh, because it's up to you to want to, to develop in that way. Whereas uh, something that we do at the Lear is to point out that it, um, that acting is hard and it doesn't mean you're not talented if initially there are things you can't do. Mm -hmm. um, it's a craft there there are things that you have to practice um and and just to separate hard work from talent and 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 reassure people because you can do your best creative work if you're feeling secure and safe you know mm. yeah completely how did you respond within that competitiveness what what's your like instinct within that um to to strategize right <laughs> just uh, so for the first month i was fine because i was a little bit older i was like 25 i've been out and I've been working in the professional world and early on in Lecoq it's all about uh, improvisation and story building and so I would have known a thing or two about stories mm -hmm. and so I did okay and that would settle my nerves um, and then and then it moved into the more abstract natures of movement and for a while I was completely lost I didn't know what they wanted or needed from me but I was 25 I wasn't looking to be an actor I was looking to be a director mm -hmm. so I did feel like I had to succeed so I was but um no, still hard on the ego with all that said um, and yeah as I turned up every day but I marvelled at some of the students who were able to get knocked back and knocked back and we were still able to go and had real uh, respect for their courage and they improved and they were great and then four or five months in training it all began to ah oh, I see I see what we've been doing and it did land um, and it was an experiential thing and it, and it became more intuitive and my, I discovered my eye had completely changed and then I could sometimes physically do it as well which was great Yeah. Um, and had a ball then so uh, but I think it stood me in good stead to be a student or to be a teacher of students down the line and did you have any like anxiety about leaving like being 25 having been working for however long you'd been working since college and whatever and then being like okay see you later I'm going to France for a year did you have any fear like oh, they won't remember me when I'm back or some some of those uh, things uh, no I didn't uh, I was lucky uh, just before I went uh, we made Tick My Box so and it took nine months for that to come back on tour so mm. when so it just went on I literally left while it was mid-run to go to Paris and then on my Easter holidays I came home to do the re-rehearsal and it went back out on the road so it was actually on the road the year and I was only going for the year so and Paris isn't far and Ryanair and um, so I didn't feel disconnected no but um, uh, uh, yeah I was really happy to just be like uh, I thought it was a really necessary thing to do so and in terms of then, wh like, what was it like making work as a young maker then in terms of like, like actually the practicalities of it in terms of like spaces to make work? Because I mean, it's one of the things now where, you know, you're looking around as a, a, a young theatre maker and you're like, there are actually like no spaces really or like very, mm. very few in terms of venues to make work. Has that always been a problem that Dublin has had or was it different then? Well, um, it's it would seem that there's always been one or two venues where 
where you can absolutely where you can try things out and where young talent can uh, can experiment let's say so it was the crypt w- when I came out of mm. college um, uh, and similarly though you put your work on the crypt and you would hope to evolve to project which I suppose is still the, the situation now you put your set work on in theatre upstairs and you hope it might transfer to project or put it on in Smock Alley uh, but it's literally been one or um, so there hasn't been that many venues it's, so it's uh, it's a shame the theatre upstairs uh, is, is taking a break um, but I suppose there's still Smock Alley to a degree yeah um, and my sister uh lived in London she was she was in radio at the time um, but she got involved in a fringe show in London and and I heard all this sort of background to that the, the finances of that um, and where you needed to be able to put the thousands of pounds down up front to secure your venue right. in advance um, whereas in Ireland and I think it's uh, still the case people will wait for the box office to arrive before asking you to pay the rent um, is that it no, no. In no. Alley they want down well, payment. Well, it depends. No, I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't. I've actually not. I'm not. Um, yeah, not you, you, like. I've just put down a like a very very sizable deposit for a theatre show soon uh, in the in the new theatre. Yeah. Though it's not Smack Alley. I haven't actually, but I did get on Smack Alley as well, and yeah. I was comparing rates in the new theatre scene to make more sense. So I mean, that'll put it in the context for you. But yeah, I mean, it is it is interesting, and I mean, like, look, these places are only trying to like stay open. You know, you wouldn't fault them. You know, they're lacking funding as much as all of no, us. No, uh, and uh, but I just um, uh, I was just aware, and it still will be the case that it's so much cheaper to yeah, get work on here sure. than in than in other places. I am, mm-hmm. and that. Uh, and that the amount of money that you needed to get uh, wasn't prohibitive. Right. But uh, it's never easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's very interesting. Right, let's give it a spin. Whoa, we spat one away. Let's see where it goes. Oh my God. Number one. Ah. <laughs> Trying to get away in this. You don't have a deal? Well, I have a 17 and 19 and 12. They each have a one. Yeah, they do. But um, that is absolutely useless. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, uh, do you believe in ghosts? Uh, no, I'd love to. Yeah. I'd love to see one because it would be proof that there's something after, wouldn't it? Yeah. But uh, no, I don't. No. No, it's a, yeah, short answer. <laughs> have you I think it is a short answer. Anyway. Yeah. Have you ever done one of the, um? Because it was, I was... Yeah, I was reading some Conor McPherson work, and you know, it's very prevalent throughout like a lot of yeah. Irish theatre, yeah, yeah, especially of that like general like McPherson a row and uh, Marina Carr a little bit. Is that right? Like maybe less so, but anyway. But she's haunted, and they probably all are haunted by memories, isn't she? Is she has characters haunted by lost loved ones? So yeah, there's ghosts. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. have you ever done a, a ghostly play? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think I have actually. Um, but I presume it's it's that thing of being haunted by memories uh, most of the time. I love the weird. That's an amazing yeah. ghost story. And and uh, you can see horror tropes slipping into all these other stories like the Black Swan and things like that. Mm. Uh, and that sense of the other world is always there. It, you know, it can be hugely resonating and gripping. Um, so uh, I've, I've no problem with ghost stories. In fact, I enjoy them, but don't buy them yeah and then like when you said if, if if you did see one that'd mean like there is something does that imply that your belief is that there is nothing right now yeah 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 but I'm okay with that in terms of um, uh, there's that humanist idea that let's live well now and and uh, and hopefully uh, 
there's lots of good reasons to be good and to be needful now with everyone. We don't need to have a reward in the next life. That's the reward in the present, if, mm. if you can. And what's your relationship been with, like, you know, with religion, like growing up as, you know, in Ireland? And uh, I, I mean, like, obviously there's been like huge shift in even the last like 15, yeah. 20 years, just in terms of like statistically of like people who engage with religion and who do now. Like what's your b- relationship been with it? Well, my parents would have brought me to mass on s- and I would have found it mostly dull. And I kind of liked the sermons <laughs> when I was a kid. Mm. And I remember saying to my mom, I think one day walking home, I was going, I wish it could have just be one long sermon. That's the best bit. Yeah. Um, but that was probably when I was 12 or 13. Um, and uh, and so I would know my Bible stories quite well, particularly particularly New Testament, the story, uh, the stories of Jesus and the different versions mm. um, uh, relatively well. Uh, but when I got to college, um, university is when I realized that so many of the religions of the world match the political system that they s- that they are in. So right. we have a, we had a feudal system in the Western world, father and sons and what you know, with Jesus the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, whereas you have a caste system in India and they believe in reincarnation. Mm. You know, that works with a caste system, doesn't it? Um, and uh, they had Confucius in China where they had a dictator. And once I, once I saw the parallel between the religion and the the way the society was already structured, I began, it, it kind of started to break away along with all the scandals, mm-hmm. etc., which... Um, uh, have just continued. I'm um, so yeah. For it's been a relatively um, atheistic uh, worldview for about twenty years now. And w- in terms of then, like your parents, and obviously, if that was a thing for them, how have, how has their um, views changed in that same way? Obviously, you know, talk about the scandals and stuff. Like, I I always I'm always just fascinated with that. I mean, I saw it with my own grandparents and just like how difficult that was because. Like, you know, my grandparents came from the generation of like they had two priests mm. in the family and like how that was like, you know, an honor. That was something to brag about, really. You know what I mean? Like they were all very proud of that. Like in the same way, you know, you might be if you had like a, a doctor or. A well, the funny thing is I would still go to Christmas Eve or Christmas morning mass mm. and I would like to in terms of, you know, it marks an occasion. And um, I'm probably beginning to I had a, uh, had a, didn't have a I didn't get married in a church. Um, and had a woman celebrant um, um, interfaith uh, ceremony, which was really special. I am, and I'm probably now beginning to it much more comfortably envisage funerals without the church's involvement as well. Because, mm. um, but it's funny how that's taken years to evolve to. Well, how would we have a funeral without them? They're great for that, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm beginning to realize. I oh, know there's another way we can reimagine these things. Um, my folks didn't push back at all in my when I stopped going to mass in the early twenties. Um, however, they were still very committed. Um, and I think, yeah, they've been quietly going on their own personal journeys. I know my mom only in recent years has finally stopped going herself. Mm. Um, and I used to always look at priests and kind of go, if they were over a certain age, I had no problem with the, you know, I, and I imagined, you know, that must be so uh, hard um, in terms of, you know, because how when you're within within an institution and the institution does wrong, where does your blame lie and, and how much do you take upon yourself and can you fix it from the inside and all those questions and um, and if they're and you've been so long inside an institution where, but I did look at younger priests kind of going uh, um, uh, with much less sympathy uh, in my early 20s going how can you be mm. entering that now um, and and uh, and certainly 
I'm very aware of all the bad that has come with the Catholic Church and uh, its institutional problems and its lack of taking responsibility and uh, um, and uh, yeah, not in favour of it. But I don't go pushing it at home in any way because for that reason. Yeah, it was when I was home <coughs> to vote j- last year during the repeal. Uh, referendum. I there was a guy from the year ahead of me in school in the full priest getup, and he's he's you know been to Maynooth and he is a priest, and uh, I mean twenty six maybe mm-hmm. at the oldest. And it, I actually got a fright in my tummy. I was like, because oh, I yeah. couldn't like it, yeah. like, and it's such a and it was very in, like it was very because everyone else you know was coming from work in their suits or you know in in their jeans and shirt and then but like even just the statement of wearing the like flamboyantly like I mean you notice when a priest isn't there wasn't and like how was your empathy levels hard right um I mean I I was I'm so curious about it like I I'm so curious because <clears throat> yeah I mean I, I guess it it obviously must make sense in in his life I assume that's the only reason. He's he's mm-hmm. he's doing it, and like it's very hard to, like I never tell anyone to not follow what they believe like their truth is, but at the same time, you know when it when it is as you said, like as part of an institution who like destroyed other people's lives in the past, it's very difficult. It's complicated. It's and still do, and the role of women and what they're yeah. doing in Africa, and not allowing uh, these condoms. All you know, mm. there's just so much badness. Yeah, uh, um, you know. Yeah. yeah, I know, and it's interesting because you see it on like someone you went to school with and like you know you would have like kicked football with when when yeah. when you were younger. So you see like a real you know human person with all their vulnerabilities and flaws and whatever. But then yeah, on an institutional level, like it's it's very interesting when when you see like a small cog as par- a part of that, and then when you blow it up and you're like, well, this actually has like huge ripple effects. Yes, yeah, totally. And so your shackles didn't go up. You were you were able to just hit curiosity and yeah, it it was more it was more the it was more the like. I just would love to know what's going yeah, on. What yeah. makes someone today? I, I just couldn't. Yeah, and I, when I was younger, it was funny. Like I used to get like bribed to be a priest by like my older relatives. Like they'd be like, mm. "Tom, here's a fiver. Be a priest. Here's a fiver. Be a <laughs> yeah. priest. Like here's twenty. Go for bishop. Like it was, it was this sort of stuff. Honestly, and yeah. like, and I used to get it. But I kind of think now that like a lot of priests probably just wanted to be comedians like, or actors oh, right. or something yeah. like dress up the costume. I know my lines. Speak in front of an audience. There's something to it. Like oh, totally. Absolutely, I thought coming home, uh, Billy McMahon's play last year oh. got, uh, got a lot of that. Yeah, in there. it was great. Yeah, it was brilliant. Mm. Right, we have time for one more. So one more. let's give it a spin. Here, Here we, we go. go. Here we go. Number nineteen. Yes. Yeah, you do. Two brilliant. I told you your last one was useless. That one's better. That is good. Uh, number nineteen. Oh, kind of interesting way to uh, finish. Um, but let's go for it. Have you ever, or do you ever consider emigrating? Uh. Uh, no, I um, well, I w- went away to study to yeah. come back. Um, there might have been a time um where London was an option, but that idea of um, not wanting to have a new idea every year um meant that I always wanted to be teaching. I've always sort of seen those two things going really well hand in hand, really holistically. Mm. Um, and uh, so, but I was aware that uh, that becoming a teacher. Um, of acting meant that I could take I could do that in another city if necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
I went to Australia for the first time to Perth last year and the, the weather was so nice and the older people uh, all over the place doing jobs and seeming really integrated into a community, really being visible and respected. And I thought that might be a nice place to retire, which mm-hmm. is the strangest idea that I was even thinking of because I also don't think I ever will retire. I was going to ask. So, uh, um, so uh, I think in the main, no, but I would love to be fluent in French. I'd love to, so I wouldn't mind spending some time there. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing China. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, uh, you know, and, and the idea of taking a sabbatical at some point, maybe. Uh, but it's never been really real mm. to me. Um, uh, uh, the idea of living somewhere else. Do you think you will? When you say you'll never retire, what do you think that will look like? Do you think that will look like you will always be, you will always be making? Does it look like you'll be like Hillary Woods, you know, mid seventies still teaching? What What do you think it'll evolve into? Yeah, I would like to think I'll I'll always be making. Now I do look around and I do look at freelance directors and who are working beyond their sixties, etc. You know, and it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, so, so I worry that 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 I won't be able to do that. Um. Uh, but uh, but uh, that's definitely the ambition is to continue to make work um, uh, both as a writer and as a director. But, uh, similarly, you look at writers and you wonder um, who kept writing into. The, but we've loads of great examples on that front. Like mm-hmm. When I went to see Afterplay by Friel, like he was well into his 70s by then. And I was 23 or four watching it and I was totally heartbroken by it. Um, and I was kind of going, how does a man in the 70s have anything to say to me? That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I, because I wouldn't have known much, my Chekhov particularly well by then. So I was just seeing as two two people meeting because mm-hmm. um, there are two plays from, two characters from two separate Chekhov plays meeting later on. He's imagined what might happen later after oh, play. Okay. okay. Um, and, it's, I, <laughs> uh, and it was great. Um, so, yeah, so I think that there is a way to keep practicing and working the whole time so that that would be the hope on that front um, and then I suppose London I've never thought of it as an emigration anyway like I've often dreamed of working in London and in Dublin but with the flights I don't think there's any need to consider uh, a move yeah you know? yeah yeah I think you're right well I mean class is going there pretty soon so it's pretty exciting yeah. um, do you want to tell us about all the bits that are coming up because I know there's lots uh, well, uh, there's yes. If you're in London, um, if for the month of May, do come down to Shepherd's Bush and see our play. That'd be great. There's matinees on Wednesdays and Saturdays, as well as Monday to Saturday. Um, and at the moment, if you are, uh, the, uh, the, well, there's lots of discount tickets as well. Um, I, if you're in Cardiff uh, for the first week of May, uh, check us out at the Millennium Centre for class. I'm and. Uh, if you're in Dublin later in May, I'll be directing Bronte uh, by Polly Teal, uh, which is a great play about the Bronte sisters mm. um, uh, with the graduating year from the Lear. So uh, I've a cast of six uh, with great parts uh, for actors. And I'm really looking forward to. So that starts rehearsals right on the heels of class. Great. So, uh, yeah, do check out any of those. Really great. Dave Horn, thanks for playing Personality Bingo. Thanks for having me, Tom Warren. So guys, that was a fantastic David Horan playing Personality Bingo. Dave, if you're listening, a massive thank you to you for taking the time to do it. It was so lovely getting to sit down and talk about uh, all things football, writing, theatre, whatever it was. Uh, I really enjoyed the chat uh, the whole way through. So thank you for um, taking time out of your busy schedule. And as I said, guys, I really implore you to go and check out Class. It's written and directed by uh, Isolt Golden and uh, Dave. It's a 
beautiful, beautiful piece. Um, the cast is, is is really special too. So go and check it out. Uh, you won't regret it. It's hitting Cardiff and London uh, in the month of May. So make sure you, you get that one uh, under your belts because uh, it's a really special piece of theatre. And once you're done with that, come see the Belly Button Girl. It's my play. Uh, it's uh, a comedy, um, but it's wrapped up in a in a drama, if that makes sense. It's... Um, something I'm really proud of and I think if you like this podcast hopefully you will like it we've got a great team Romana Testaseca Owen Lennon Ursula McGinn it's hitting the new theatre from May 14th to the 19th uh, tickets are super reasonable starting from as low as 14 euro uh, and look there's a lot of uh, time love and uh, hopefully laughs gone into this one uh, I think you'll really really enjoy it if you like this podcast and uh, I'd love to see you there as always a huge thank you to the boss woman Erin Lindsay for mixing editing and producing this podcast to the brilliant Leah Moore and Anthony Manley for their gorgeous theme music and to Connor Nolan for his stunning artwork as well as Alan Bennett and Paddy O'Leary for having us aboard the Head Stuff Podcast Network uh, they keep the lights on here they do amazing work there are so many great podcasts here uh, I feel very lucky to have personality bingo as a part of them uh, and a main thank you to you guys um, as I said the numbers have been outstanding lately for the podcast which is so huge it's so nice to see that um, it's connecting and if you're in a position to um do a little screenshot of the episode that makes uh, a big difference just fire that up on your Instagram story and um, tag us in it so we know you're doing it and uh, but yeah that sort of stuff really does make a difference people just kind of go oh yeah that thing I should listen or they're like oh yeah what's that thing I should listen I know that sounds real basic but um I think we all kind of are. So if you're in a position where you can spread the word, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, face-to-face, uh, -face, mouth to mouth foot-to-foot, whatever you can do, uh, I promise I really appreciate it. But enough of all that, guys. Go enjoy your lives. And we'll see you back next week for another episode of Personality Bingo with Tom Moran.